they told me to read 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 18 through 24, but we're going to read 25 too. All right. Just so y'all know. All right. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does that leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish, plan of God, this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Thank you very much. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Aaron, for sharing your story. Uh, it's just amazing. Uh, thanks for being here today. We are in the second week or part two of this series that we're calling, uh, How Can I Be Sure?, how can I be sure? And this is, a, this is a series of talks where we're talking about doubt and questions about Christianity. Um, the big, I guess the big questions of Christianity and, uh, and, and what, what it is that we believe. And last week we talked about what is truth. And I shared this quote with you uh, from George MacDonald talking about doubt. He said, doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet, but have to be understood. And what he was saying, George MacDonald, is that our doubts, if we will let them, are usually an invitation. We don't have to be scared, even though it can feel scary, or we don't have to be embarrassed, even though it can feel embarrassing. That if we will let it, our doubts and our questions are usually an invitation to a journey with God that he wants to lead us on and the end of that journey. And all along the way, that journey is really a road to more faith in, in the truth. And I was thinking about this today, uh, just driving to church. This is my second daylight savings time joke. Uh, not really a joke, but I was thinking about how every time we lose an hour, I struggle to go to sleep. Cause I feel this pressure. Like, well, you're losing an hour. You need to get to sleep. Anybody feel that pressure? Like I, I'm just, I'm just staring at the ceiling. Like you really need to go to sleep because you're going to lose an hour, you know? And at like 6 PM, I'm like, well, it's really seven. You know, you start playing that game with yourself. And I was just thinking about how much pressure I felt to fall asleep last night. I, this is the bizarre, the most bizarre thing. And, and I was thinking about that because I think when it comes to our doubts and our questions and our faith, that once there is this like slightest little amount of question or doubt, we feel this pressure like, I've got to figure it out. I've got to know. I've got to find the answers. I can't, it's not, it's not okay for me to, to, to not be totally sure, or I don't want to be on the outside looking in. There is this pressure that we, that we feel, but, but we shouldn't. I mean, it's there and it's real. And it's not that we're ever going to really push it away. 
But the fear or the pressure and the embarrassment really should not be a part of these doubts or these questions that we're experiencing. Because if, if we will keep searching, if we will keep looking, if we'll keep showing up, if we'll keep leaning in, and we really want to know the truth. What we learned is that last week is, is Jesus said that if you love the truth, you'll know the truth when you see it. And you'll know the truth when you hear it. If you want to believe the truth, then, then, then you'll, you'll believe it when it presents itself to you. But the opposite is also true, that if you don't want to know the truth, you'll find a reason not to believe it. And so we want to, we want to love the truth. We want to search from an honest heart. And we want to experience more of Jesus and, and, and more, more faith. So last week we talked about what is truth. And then this week we're going to answer the question, who is Jesus? Next week we're going to talk about what is the Bible? How, how can I trust the Bible? What is the Bible? And then that last week we're going to talk about some of the most common kind of critiques of Christianity. We're going to talk about uh, what about sex, slavery, science, and suffering. We're just going to have all the S's there for pe- why people say they can't be a Christian. Uh, we're going to look at that. But, but this week, we're going to focus on who is Jesus. And this is an important question to answer, obviously. The most important question to answer. Because for a Christian, our entire faith is based on the existence of Jesus Christ. Which I know is like a duh. But I think sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes it's possible to begin to think of Christianity in terms of ideals, or an association, or a worldview. And I, I, I think that without realizing it, a lot of Christians um, see Jesus as an idea. But we kind of lose sight of the fact that Jesus was, is a real person, a real person. I, uh, I heard a, I read a pastor this week um, on social media, which is, you know, I mean, I guess I'm a pastor on social media, so I better be careful what I say. But, um, but this pastor was, was just kind of making a, a rant about politics and Christianity. And the gist of what this pastor was saying was that gas prices are really high because of the president. And if we would just have revival in our country, then God would heal our land and we would get a new leader who would lower gas prices. He was making this connection between revival and the cost of gas. And I laughed, but I wanted to cry. I wanted to comment, but I didn't do that. I, I just, I laughed, but I wanted to cry because these are the kinds of things that you say when Christianity becomes about ideals instead of the person of Jesus Christ. And Christianity is about the person of Jesus Christ. And so um, we're gonna answer this question today, who is Jesus? And my prayer uh, for those of us who are already believers, those of us who already believe in Jesus is that, is that we will leave with even more faith and hope in who Jesus is. And that for anyone who doesn't believe that over the next 30 minutes or so, your heart would come alive in a way that I cannot manufacture or produce for you, but that only the Holy Spirit could do in you, like Aaron was talking about, that, that your heart would come alive and that you would believe in him. Okay, so to get started, I want to kind of start on the, on the, the negative of it. I want to talk about who Jesus is not. So we're going to answer who is Jesus, but I want to start by talking about who is Jesus is not. And I think this is helpful because it's so easy for all of us to imagine Jesus in our context. Everyone, when I say the word Jesus or the name Jesus, you kind of have an image in your mind of who Jesus is or, or what Jesus is. 
And it's probably in the context of the life that you live or what you see when you look in the mirror or the, the world that, that you live in. But we don't get to make up the characteristics of Jesus. Jesus is a, is a real person. Jesus was a human being on the earth. And so we don't get to make up his characteristics. He had characteristics and has characteristics. And so I, I, they're going to throw a list up for you. These are just a couple of things that Jesus is not. Jesus and I'm using past tense here, thinking about his time on the earth. But Jesus was not white. Jesus did not speak English. Jesus was not an American citizen. Jesus was never married. Jesus never had sex. Jesus did not have children. Jesus did not own a home. And Jesus was not rich. So leave that list up there for just a second. Before I move on, I want us to just absorb this information for a moment. Because again, I'm going to say a lot of things today that are like, yeah, I knew that. But do we know it? Now, this doesn't make white, English, American, married, wealthy, home-owning parents bad people, okay? This is not not an indictment on, on anything that we are. But I bring it up because many people seem to have complaints about the church, Maybe it's the church's views on sex or the way we talk about money or political views about immigration. And if that's you, if you have some of those issues, your problem is really with a specific person or people. Your objections are really about uh, specific churches or specific groups of people, not Jesus. And definitely not Christianity. Okay, Jesus doesn't look like a white conservative politician and he doesn't look like a, 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 a black activist. He doesn't look like any of the, the faces for any of the social movements that are happening or the things that we see on 24-hour uh, news. Jesus was a Palestinian, like literally, for real. He was a Middle Eastern man. We don't get to decide what he looked like He was a Middle Eastern Palestinian man, but we'll get to that in a moment, okay? Um, Statistically speaking, statistically speaking, the face of Christianity, this is really important, so please hear this. Statistically speaking, you know I love my stats. The face of Christianity is not a 50-year-old white man. You need to hear this because one of the common objections to Christianity is that it's uh, it's this white, old, conservative thing. But that's, that's not accurate. It can feel that way, but it's not accurate. Statistically speaking, if you take all the data on all the proclaiming Christians in the world, and you take the breakdown of their gender, color, and age of every Christian in the world, proclaiming Christian in the world, you will find that the face of Christianity is a middle-aged African woman. This is really important because we're changing some of our ideas today and our framework today. So when, if you are skeptical or cynical, or you are the type of person who kind of bashes on Christianity, what you are bashing on is the religion of middle-aged African-American women as the largest representation of the Christian movement. Christianity is not uh, the largest, it's not most represented by Americans. It's most represented by Africans and Asians. 
Statisticians say that by the year 2030, that Asia, specifically China, which is miraculous in itself, will be the Christian nation of, of the world, not, not America. Starting about 30 years ago, countries started sending missionaries to America because statistically we need the help. We need the help. And so anytime you hear people critiquing Christianity because it's too white or it cares too much about money or it's too conservative, they are not talking about Christianity and they are definitely not talking about Jesus. They are talking about a very specific personal experience that they have had or that they have. In the context of where they are, they have frustrations, maybe rightfully so or maybe not rightfully so, about the context in which they are practicing their faith. But generally speaking, Christianity is a diverse, diverse religion based on a man who was Middle Eastern. Okay, now Dutch photographer and digital artist Bas Underwick did an interesting experiment recently by creating photo images of people who existed before photography using artificial intelligence. I don't know, maybe you saw this floating around the internet. I thought it was really fascinating. So what he did is he took historical factors, famous paintings, and anything that might be helpful. He fed them into the AI program to see what was created. He did this for all kinds of pre-photo photogenic, photographic, uh, historical figures, but he also included Jesus in that. And I want to show you what came out for the image of Jesus. Go ahead and throw this up on the screen for us, guys, that this is artificial intelligence. We can't prove this in any way that this was Jesus, but based on all the factors put into the artificial intelligence machine, our best guess is that Jesus looked something like this. And I don't know how that makes you feel. My goal is not to make you feel uncomfortable or to offend you in any way. But I want us to just look at this image for a moment and recognize that if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because you believe that this man, not necessarily this man, but someone who looks like this man, is your Savior. Not, not an idea not just a spirituality, but someone who resembles this man came and lived and died as your, as your savior. And I just thought that this was such a beautiful reminder for all of us that Jesus was a real person, is a real person. I'm going back and forth on the past tense thing. It's bugging me. <laughs> that Jesus was a real person. He is a real person, a human being. But he was a Middle Eastern man. And I, I don't want to overstate anything, but I was really challenged this week while working on my sermon to remind all of us that to be a Christian means to believe in a 33-year-old non-English speaking human being. We don't just believe in God. We don't, we're not just spiritual people. We don't just go to church or live by a moral code. We believe in a human being. We believe in a Palestinian baby that showed up around 2,000 years ago, about 9,000 miles away on the earth and claimed to be God. 
I'm talking slow on purpose because I want to make sure we hear this. That our faith as Christians is in the belief that a human being, a Palestinian baby, about 2,000 years ago, about 9,000 miles away, showed up, claimed to be God, lived a sinless life for 33 years, volunteered to die, and three days after his death, he rose from the dead. That's what you believe if you say you're a Christian. And if that sounds absolutely insane to you, then you can really relate to the scripture that Deja read for us today. Because Paul said that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know that it is the power of God. That what I just explained to you, to people who do not believe and who are headed for destruction, meaning that their souls are headed for eternal damnation of their souls, that what I just explained to you sounds utterly ridiculous. But for those of us who have, who have, our hearts have been opened through the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't think it's foolish. We don't think it's crazy. We understand why people do, but we believe that it is the power of God. And the reason we're taking four weeks to talk about doubt and questions is because faith doesn't mean blind faith. To believe is a conscious choice. And yes, there is a supernatural element to it. And we're going to talk about that. But if you are moving away from God because your experience with church or Christians or politics or anything else, if that's the reason predominantly that you're moving away from God or you're struggling in your faith or you're becoming skeptical or deconstructing, you're missing the point. I don't say that to belittle you in any way or what you're experiencing, but you're missing the point. The only question you have to answer is, what do you do with Jesus? Yeah, man, the church has its issues. Our country has its issues. Christians are hypocrites. Got it. Got it. But what do you do with Jesus? Because to me, I mean, to be a Christian means to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said that he did. And, and if Jesus really is who he said he is, then it is really good news. I mean, it's the best news. It means that God cares enough about you to leave heaven and come to where you are and to show himself in flesh and bone. If, if what this Middle Eastern man 2,000 years ago said is true, it means that God loved you and me enough to, to show himself to the world, not as an idea, not as a theory, but as a human being. And the truth is, it would have been a lot easier to ignore God if he had never come as a human. And he would have been an abstract idea, a theory. And I love the way Eugene Peterson talks about this. Um, Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, when God revealed himself to us, he did it in a human body. Can you think of any other way that God could have made it easier for us to know him, to meet him, to follow in his ways? But for many, maybe most, it's far easier to believe in an invisible God than a visible God. When it comes right down to it, I would rather be like God than have God be like me. It turns out that a lot of us, more times than we like to admit, aren't all that excited that a very human Jesus 
is revealing God to us. We have our own ideas of what we want God to be like. We keep looking around for a kind of religion or style of spirituality that gives us some promise that we can be God-like, be in control of our lives and the lives of others. I love that. The beauty is that we don't have to guess what God is like. He gives us Jesus. But if we're being honest, having a a human example of God is really inconvenient. Because if it's true, it requires us to respond. And so what I want to do for the time that I have left is I want to answer three questions uh, together today. Three questions. The first question is, did Jesus really exist The second question is, did Jesus really die? And the third question is, did Jesus really resurrect? Three questions. Did Jesus really exist? Did Jesus really die? Did Jesus really resurrect? And then at the very end, just to give you a heads up, I am going to ask you if you believe in Jesus. And for some of you, you won't, and that's okay. Others of you will still be on the fence, and that's okay too. But some of you, you're going to make a decision today like Aaron did in his hope story, to believe in Jesus and to decide to follow him. And that will be a beautiful, a beautiful thing, okay? So let's answer these three questions. The first question we wanna answer is, did Jesus really exist? Did Jesus really exist? And a skeptic would say, well, that's a great starting point because how do you even know? I mean, how can you really know? And it's a fair question, Although I would say that if you're going to ask that question about Jesus, it would be fair to ask that question about every historical figure that we say existed. And we don't want to just say, how do you know Jesus existed? How do you know that anybody before we were able to prove that they existed, existed? And if you use that as your standard, I think you'll find that there is overwhelming evidence. If, if relatively speaking, we're using the historical criteria to validate the existence of people, you'll find that Jesus has overwhelming evidence for his existence. That's kind of a different conversation, but I do want to try to answer this question. How do you know Jesus existed? And, and we have answers to that. By far, the biggest historical evidence for the life of Jesus is in the four gospel accounts of his life in the New Testament. Now, I know that for someone who is skeptical about Christianity, having the Bible to prove the existence of Christ is not a good enough answer because you don't believe the Bible either. And so that's fine. As a spiritual book, there's some valid arguments there. But as a historical book, the Bible is a real book. I mean, the the documentation of when the letters were written and the scrolls that have been found, like no one argues that even if the people who wrote it made it up, they really did write it. And it really did exist for all of this time. And so even if we don't want to view the Bible as a spiritual book, we can view the Bible in some ways as a historical reference point. And I'm going to give you some outside of the Bible in just a second. But we, but, but we, need, to, we need to stop for a moment and recognize just how insane it is that a poor Middle Eastern peasant with no political power would have at least four different people take the time, money, and risk to write biographies about a person who didn't exist. I'm going to think about that for a moment. Jesus, according to worldly standards, had no significant reason for anyone to biographically detail his life. But for some reason, four 
poor Middle Eastern people gathered the teams, the skills, and the resources to detail an account of this person's life. And if he didn't exist, that is a lot of work for something that isn't true. And even if the stories are made up, non-believing historians will verify that the accounts were really written. So that means that these men and teams of people took years to scrupulously write an account of someone's life because they believed it was worth it. They didn't make any money for writing it. As a matter of fact, it cost them incredibly, and it put their lives at risk to write these accounts. And they had no idea when they were writing it that it would be a part of something called the Bible. And we'll talk about that next week. They didn't even know there would be something called the Bible. They were just writing a letter. They were just writing an account. And three of the four authors claimed to be eyewitnesses to all of the events. They were there when it happened. And then the other one, Luke, he claimed to to do extensive research with eyewitnesses before he started writing. And I want to just show you this. This is Luke chapter 1, the very first verses of Luke's letter, not as a Bible book, but as just a historical account for this man named Jesus. This is what Luke said. Many people, verse one, very first word, uh, words of Luke, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us, which we have to stop and say, why would they do that? Why would many people set out to write accounts about the events that have happened? Because something happened something worthwhile, something that they felt need to be documented. He says, they use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early uh, disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, which we believe uh, to be some type of political ruler or believer that this, this, and he tells us why he was doing this for Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. So Luke and probably Peter, depending on who you believe historically, Peter and Luke partner together and they write this historical account for this man named Theophilus because Theophilus most likely is now a believer in Jesus. And they want Theophilus to have record that this man really existed. They were writing accounts so that people would know who he was and what he did. But the Bible is not the only historical document we have that mentions Jesus. There are four other historical accounts from Jewish history that talk about a man named Jesus or Christ. These are not religious people. These are not believers. Uh, They're not Christians. Three of the four of them are not Christians. They are just giving us uh, Jewish history or world history. And Josephus, which is probably the most popular, was not a Christian, but he is by all accounts, the person who gives us the greatest account of Jewish history historically of this time period of, of, of anything that's out there. And so he wrote these words about 93 AD, Josephus in his book Antiquities. This is what he wrote. I'm gonna put this up on the screen for you. It says, about this time lived Jesus, a wise man. Remember, he's not a believer. If indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was the achiever of extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When he was indicted by the principal men among us and Pilate condemned him to be crucified, Those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so. 
For he appeared to them on the third day, restored to life, as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other marvelous things about him and the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has, has not disappeared to this day. This is not the Bible. This is not scripture. This is a historian. We would use Josephus's words to, to verify all the other things that were happening around this time. And this is what he says about Jesus. I want to show you one more. This is Tacitus talking about Rome. He said, the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities, uh, Christus, Christus talking about Christ, the founder of the name was put to death by Pontius Pilate uh, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Now that was a, I wanted to give you all that information because I want you to see that based on the criteria we use outside of Christianity to verify the existence of things that happened historically, Jesus meets the criteria. Now you may say, well, wait a second, four historical references, that's not many. That's a lot. There, there are no references to, to people who lived in random villages, but something happened that got the attention of people, that caused them to want to document it in some way. And so honestly, I can't make up your mind for you, but honestly, even the harshest critics of Christianity and skeptics don't really argue that Jesus was a real person who existed. There are people who do, who do argue that, but they don't, the, the foundation for that is, is so not credible, even for people who are not Christians. As you begin to try to find a case against the existence of Jesus, you will find that overwhelmingly the evidence is that he was a real man who existed. So we keep talking about that, but we're not, we're going to keep going. The second question that I want to answer for you is, did Jesus really die? Did Jesus really die? Well, I don't mean to talk down to anybody, but if you believe he really lived, then he had to die at some point. Okay. Uh, But that's not what most people mean. They want to know, was Jesus really crucified? Was Jesus really crucified? Well, we read, we read the words of Tacitus just a moment ago who, who referenced the death of Christus at the hands of a man named Pontius Pilate, which would align with what the Bible says. We have almost six, at least six, seven historical accounts that describe in the same way the death of this man named Jesus Christ. And we know that crucifixion would have been a standard way of capital punishment during that time. That's not hard to believe. But one, for, for me, I can only speak for me, but for me, one of the most convincing arguments comes from a statement made by the men who killed Jesus. And this is what it says, Matthew 26. Again, I'm using the Bible, but I'm using it in this context more as a historical document than I am a spiritual document. Matthew 26 uh, This is what it says after the death of Jesus, verse 62. It says, the next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and the Pharisees, these are the men who killed Jesus, went to see Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who Tacitus and Josephus told us about. And they told him, sir, we remember what the deceivers, they didn't even believe that he was the Messiah, but he was real. They heard him, saw him, touched him. What the deceiver once said while he was still alive After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. 
These are the men who thought Jesus was insane and had him killed, but they did not argue that he died and was crucified. He died on the cross. His body was broken. He stopped breathing. They took him off the cross. They put him in a tomb. And the men who killed him said, we'd like to put some guards out in front of the tomb because he was dead. And if you believe that Jesus really lived, then you're gonna have to come up with the reason why you think he died or how you think he died. But every historical account we have of his death says the same thing. He was arrested, falsely accused, stood trial, and was sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate. And when he died on that cross, his body was laid to rest in the tomb. You don't have to believe that. But if you don't believe that, then you don't really have any reason to believe anything we've talked about up to this point. But if you do believe that, then you believe that Jesus was a man, a human being who claimed to be God. He lived this life. He volunteered to die. Could have stopped it, but he didn't. He was, he was crucified. And up to this point, we, we say that faith doesn't mean blind faith, that it's a conscious choice. And up to this point, just with a little bitty tidbit of information that I've given you, there's so much more you could dive into. You could, without really needing blind faith, you could say, that is reasonable. I could believe that. That sounds like something that could have happened in that area, in that time period, the way that they say that it could have happened. We know that Pontius Pilate was a real person. He was a real ruler. We have record of that. He's in the catalog of the powerful people in Rome. So we say, you know what? I don't even really need blind faith that much. Like that just kind of adds up. But God as a human who came and died is not enough to save us. Not enough to save us. Excuse me. Up until this point, you could reasonably believe in the existence and the death of Jesus based on historical fact and data. But that would not be enough. Even non-believing, non-Christian historians will tell you there was a man who lived during this time who did things that were extraordinary. It's the last question. It's the last question where the supernatural element comes into play. And the last question or the third question is, did Jesus really resurrect? Like he he lived, he existed and he was crucified. That's hard to argue. But did Jesus really raise up from the dead? I can't answer this for you. And that bugs me, man, because I love answering things. I wish I could. I wish I could just take, you know, another hour and just convince you and lay it out for you. But I can't. I can't answer it for you. I know what the Bible says. As a historical book and as a spiritual book, I know what the Bible says, but that's not enough. That's not enough. Not for somebody who doesn't believe See, in order to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead requires something that you and I cannot manufacture on our own. It requires faith. The Bible says that you are saved by faith through, through grace. 
And so this is the point in the, the searching out for who is Jesus, where there has to be a faith element. That the data and the facts can lead you to the conclusion that he lived and that he did die and was crucified. But what do we do with the claim that he rose from the dead? Our scripture today tells us that without faith, without supernatural faith, the idea of God coming to earth 2,000 years ago, almost 9,000 miles away as a Middle Eastern man to live and die and resurrect so that we could be saved is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But to those of us who have had that moment, like Aaron was describing in his hope story, when we swear we didn't raise our hand, but we looked and our hands were up and we're crying. And we don't know why we're crying, but we can't stop crying. In that moment, the eyes of our heart have been opened and we see Jesus for who he is. And he's not just a 33-year-old Middle Eastern man. He is a savior. He is a savior. And he is the son of God. He is the very power and the wisdom of God. Not because factually you're able to convince yourself, but because there is the supernatural belief and faith in your soul that Jesus is God. In our scripture, Paul describes two types of people who have a problem with this. He calls them Jews and Gentiles, and he calls them Jews and Gentiles because he's using in context the ethnic name of who they are and the kind of the religious history of who they are. But he also meant it in a figurative way as well. And I want to just show this to you, and then we're going to pray. And I'm going to give you a chance to decide if you believe in Jesus today. But in verse 22, Paul says this. He says, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In these little verses right here, Paul tells us that there are two types of people who cannot believe what I'm telling you today. He says the first type of person who just can't accept it is the person who doesn't think it's miraculous or superstitious enough. They want signs from heaven. These are people who want God to show up on their toast. They're looking for, you know, random frequencies on the radio. They want, they, they want books to fall off bookshelves and see visions. They, they want God to come as a ghost, not a human. Not a human. And, and Paul says something interesting. He says, when they hear about this, they are offended. And what would be offensive about this? It's not enough. It's not spectacular enough. It doesn't have enough chutzpah, you know? It's gotta be more. He can't just be a baby. He can't just be a man. He can't just be a human. He's gotta be a sign. He's gotta be a superhero. And Paul says they can't believe it because it's just, it, it's not superstitious enough. He says there's another type of person that can't believe what's being described today. And this is the person who can't accept it because they don't think it's smart enough. And these are the people who want God to show up as an insight. They want to be able to understand him and master him. And they want God to come as a book, not as a human. 
See, the reality is this was true 2,000 years ago, and it's just as true today. We like the idea of God on our toast or in a book because it's impersonal and it's not inconvenient. It's superstitious or it's informational. But Jesus is not an idea that we're supposed to ponder or study or a power that we can manipulate and put to use. He's a fact. He's a fact. A historical time and place fact. A person. And Paul says he's not in our toast and he's not in our books. He is Christ crucified. He's a human being. And so let me end by asking you this question. I've asked this question every few years. I ask this question usually around Easter. Maybe I'll do it again. I don't know. Let me ask you this question. If you're here and you would say, even if it's not true, wouldn't you want it to be true? Like, think about it for just a second. Like, if you disagree with everything that I've said today and you're like, that's not true. Okay, fine. Wouldn't you want it to be true? I mean, even if you think that it, 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 it's stupid and foolish, I understand that. But wouldn't it be awesome if it was true? I want you to think about this for a moment. I mean, if it was true, that would mean that God loved you so much that he came as a human being and died so that you could have a relationship with him. You know, no other religion claims that. Did you know that? There's lots of religions out there, some more popular than others. And in every religion, in some way or another, you will find an origin story about how a human being in some way became like a God or became God. But only Christianity claims that there was one who was already a God and decided he would be a human because he loved human beings that much. Only Christianity makes that claim. And so even if you're here and you think, Jason, you're insane. Wouldn't you want me to be telling the truth? That in the way that you feel about your life and the experience that you're having and the questions you're asking yourself or the thoughts that you're saying to yourself when you're laying in bed at night or the pain that you've experienced or the suffering that you've experienced or the insecurity that you have about your life or all the self-doubt you struggle with or all the torment and shame that you feel, wouldn't it, even if you don't believe it, wouldn't it be awesome if it was true? And that means that even with everything you know about yourself, God loved you enough to come as a human being and die on the cross so that he could have a relationship with you. Wouldn't you at least want that to be true? That God came to you? I believe he did. And there's a lot of people in this room who believe he did too. And my prayer for you, if you're here, is that you would believe it, but not because I convinced you, but because the Holy Spirit gives you the faith to believe that God came as a man named Jesus, volunteered to die, was killed on your behalf, paid the price for your sins so you wouldn't have to, and rose from the dead so that you can live too. And my prayer is that you would believe, that you would have a relationship with him, And so if everybody would bow your heads and close your eyes.